Hello again, and welcome to episode 40 of We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we're here to ask you to join us on our bi-weekly mission to bring to you all of the times in history where we effed up. What are we talking about today, Cody? Uh, we're talking about something that uh, was the subject of one of the most famous scenes in movie history, the USS Indianapolis. What movie are we talking about? Jaws. Oh, okay. Okay. So the scene right. where yeah, yeah, they're all comparing their scars, and uh, Brody like you know points to Hooper or not Hooper, um, Quint. It's like, hey, what's that? He's like, that's a tattoo I had removed. It's USS Indianapolis, and everything gets real somber and stuff. But yeah, so now you gotta learn, you know, why, uh, <laughs> like what happened to essentially like inspire that scene because it's not entirely correct. His explanation of it, but... I was just about to ask, it, it did, gets, did it, a bunch of people get eaten by sharks? It gets the gist, so... Did a bunch of people get eaten by sharks? Well, if you'd have patience, I'll tell you. Well, I just want to know about the sharks. Patience. <laughs> okay. Patience, my young apprentice. <laughs> uh, I'm not an apprentice. Uh, my own Padawan. USS Indianapolis. Jaws. We're talking about Jaws. Okay. USS Indianapolis was a Portland-class cruiser of the United States Navy, commissioned in 1932. Jeez. So it's, a, it's a big ship. It's a, like one notch below a battleship. Okay. So it's pretty big. Uh, here's actually a picture of it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So it's an aircraft carrier. No. Okay. It's No, it's like one notch below a battleship. Okay. I don't know what that means, but Okay. Battleship was like the most is like the most like powerful vessel you could like you can have on the ocean like lots of guns like lots of firepower like that's what it was for is like basically just a floating gun platform a cruiser is like just a little bit less powerful okay so uh, it served several times as the vessel that carried President Franklin Roosevelt on overseas trips in the 1930s because this is the time before you know air travel was Super widely popular. used yeah. I don't think, I mean, we didn't really get the first Air Force One until, like, Truman or Eisenhower, one of the two. Dang. Um, uh, it was based out of Pearl Harbor in 1941, but was not present during the Japanese attack on December the 7th. Uh, it supported the New Guinea and Aleutian Islands campaigns in 1942. Uh, it served as a flagship of Vice Admiral Raymond Spruance and the Fifth Fleet during the Gilbert and Marshall Islands campaigns in 1943. So it was a major player. Yeah, in yeah, World it, was War II. it was a VIP ship. VIP ship. Yeah, it's like flagship, like the admirals on it. So it's like the the main command ship. Oh, okay, got it, got it. Uh, Nineteen forty-four saw Indianapolis take part in operations to retake Guam, Saipan, and Tinian, as well as participating in the Battle of the Philippine Sea, one of the most important naval engagements of the war. Returned to California for refit in October 1944 and was placed under the command of Captain Charles McVeigh in November. Uh, now McVeigh, there's a little bit, a little bit of background on him. Uh, born August 13th, 1898, in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Ephrata. Ephrata. Okay. The son of Charles McVeigh Jr., who was a Navy admiral, so he comes from a prominent naval family, which is probably how he got into the Naval Academy. Uh, from where he graduated in 1920. Like you do. Yep. 
Uh, and then he served mostly in military intelligence during World War II uh, before taking command of Indianapolis in November of 44. In 1945, after the retrofit was complete, or the refit was complete, Indianapolis was back in the fight, participating in the February raid in, on Tokyo and supporting the landings on Iwo Jima and Okinawa. During the latter, she was heavily damaged and forced to return to California for repairs. By July, Indianapolis had been repaired, and her presence in California made her available for her most important mission yet. Oh. Transporting the uranium and parts for the little boy atomic bomb to Tinian for assembly. Whoa. So this okay. is the this is the ship that actually takes the bomb to uh, the airfield where it's going to be loaded onto a plane and then used. So and there's a picture of McVeigh. Nice. Just your run-of-the-mill... It looks like literally Navy. every other Navy photo I've ever seen, that except black and white. Yeah. Um, They're all pretty much the same. I think that's the point. Yeah. On July 16th, 1945, just a few hours after the Trinity nuclear test in New Mexico, Indianapolis departed San Francisco, bound for Tinian with its lethal cargo. Where is Tinian? It's, a, it's an island in the Pacific. Okay. So, uh, like, uh, dur- during the Pacific War, the United States, they kind of did the, the, the island hopping mm-hmm. strategy, where just take one island at the next, build up a base there, like, a put an airstrip on there, and then use that to bomb the next island, and then take it, and so on and so forth, until they would reach Japan. Is it still called Tinian? I believe so, yeah. Oh, I've never heard of it. It's in the Northern Marianas. Oh, maybe that's why. So, like, like Guam is south of Saipan, like that area. It's not too far from Japan. Okay, so. cool. Uh, The ship arrived at the island on July 26th, where the bomb components were offloaded. After leaving Tinian, Indianapolis headed for Leyte in the Philippines for a training exercise after a layover at Guam. You know, just for some R&R. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Actually, I had a friend that was stationed in Guam uh, accidentally during the pandemic. So what was supposed to be, I think, a 24-month deployment ended up being and i think that the navy honored his like 24 month deployment but there would be he had to stay on the ship for six entire months so everybody was or sorry not the ship the sub he was on the sub for six months straight could not leave because everybody was quarantined and then after that everybody was in two month or two week cycles where you had to be on the ship for two weeks, and then you could be off for two weeks. But then it was like you had to, everybody who uh, transitioned back into the ship had to do a COVID test every day. Yeah. And I was like, man, that was the, and he was so excited because he's like, oh man, in Guam, there's like hiking, there's waterfalls, it's beautiful. You can like scoot around the island and only takes like a couple hours to get around the entire perimeter of the island. So he was really excited and he was getting out of the Navy after this. So he's like, this is my one last hurrah. I'll be out there for two years. But then once I'm done, you know, I'll have all this free time and I'll be able to explore and stuff. Nope. COVID had other plans. I think he got there in January of 2020. Oh. Yeah, so like no. the entirety of his time there was during COVID. Pretty much. Kind of sucks. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. So now, so Indianapolis, it's gone from Tinian. Dropped off, it dropped off the bomb. It's now Guam. Stayed there for a couple of days. It's now on its way to the Philippines. Okay. As Indianapolis cruised towards the Philippines from Guam, 
At 12.15 a.m. on July 30th, 1945, two torpedoes launched from a Japanese submarine struck the ship on the starboard side. Uh-oh. That's not good. The cruiser took massive damage and quickly began to list. Oh, McVeigh no. ordered that a distress signal be sent out, but the communication system had been damaged in the attack, so he was unsure if it was actually sent. Following those attempts, he gave the order to abandon ship. Abandon ship? Within 12 minutes, Indianapolis had sunk beneath the waves, taking about 300 of her 1,195 crew with her. Many of the initial survivors had not had time to grab life jackets, and several of the life rafts had not been deployed before the ship went down. Could be like 12 minutes. Right, That's yeah. fast. Yeah, and even though these are like highly trained military personnel, there's a certain level of chaos that happens oh, yes. when, you know, yeah. especially if you're not expecting it. Mm-hmm. Like if they thought they were, you know, free and clear and they didn't see anybody else in the, in the water. There's, and the other part is, most of the time, even when a ship takes a hit like that, they have time. They yeah. have a little bit of time. Yeah. And if immediately the ship starts to list, it got hit by two torpedoes. There's an amount of chaos that happens where, and depending on where it hit in the hole, you know, if it breached in a room or in the barracks or whatever, did it? Did you find out where the torpedoes hit? Uh, I, I didn't look. I didn't write that detail down because okay. it wasn't largely wasn't relevant. But yeah. But, yeah, that I mean, that can contribute to some of the panic. Yeah. Uh, about here's where, well, here's a map of its course. So it, it got about halfway to Leyte. It's like, here's Guam, here's, here's Philippines. So they're basically out in no man's land. There's yeah. like nothing. Yep. Nothing nearby. Correct. So even if they had gotten the lifeboats out, where are you going to go? I mean, you're at least in boats. But That's true. Uh, Indianapolis had been due to arrive at Leyte. At 11 a.m. on July 31st. Well, this requires a little bit of explanation. Theater headquarters, like, you know, there's different, you know, theaters of the, of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of, uh, the Pacific Theater. Yeah, like, and yeah. they each have their own areas of responsibility. Like, hey, you're a Philippines headquarters, you're responsible for, like, you know, Philippines scene around the Philippines, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing. Um, and they track ships based on their last reported locations, speeds, and directions of travel. Because there were no GPS around this around this time, so periodically the ship would have to report in, be like, "Hey, we're at these coordinates. We're traveling this direction at this speed." Yeah. Or the headquarters would, or the ports would like communicate with each other. Hey, this ship left at this time. That type of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that because that's the best they could really do. Right. Now, occasionally. Ships as large as Indianapolis could be diverted from their planned course at the last minute. Uh, so a delay in arrival would be chalked up to not receiving a change in orders, which okay. could happen. Yeah. So like, you know, if a port is expecting a ship, it's overdue. It's like, well, maybe it just got diverted and we, didn't get, we didn't get the orders. Right. It's not an emergency yet. Right. Yeah. It, this, uh, if, you, if you haven't listened to our episode about uh, Pearl Harbor... Kind of sounds like that might be a similar situation. I was thinking the same thing when I was re- when I was researching this. Yeah, it's such military a t- incompetence by American service personnel not recording certain things in the Pacific. That's um, <laughs> that's what it's listed under on the Dewey Decimal System. Yes. <laughs> no, it's tough though because it's like if you reported every 
you know, every situation when this happened, mm. your your CO are they're gonna knock you down about it because they're gonna say, "Don't do this shit." You know that this doesn't happen. You know it's yeah. not frequent that it happens, and it just so happens that the one time that they should have reported it is the one that really mattered. Well, it, it it's even a little bit worse than that. Uh oh. Inner hour F rapper Lieutenant Stuart Gibson. Now this is going to be one of those times the guy pops up. And then he's done. I couldn't find anything else about his background. I couldn't even find out what happened to him like later in life. I don't even know if he's still alive. Oh, boy. He might be. I, I don't know. I Jeez. just could not find anything. Uh-oh. Um, I'm sure there's records out there. I'm sure somebody knows, but I couldn't find anything. Uh, but he was the operations officer at the relevant headquarters that would have responsibility for Indianapolis. And he noted that Indy was overdue. And this is where he F's up. He logs Indianapolis as present. Oh, no. But did not enter an arrival time and did not inform his superiors, assuming that the ship had been diverted and that they would be aware of the reason for the ship's absence. Oh, boy. That's not good. The survivors, meanwhile, continued to languish in the ocean. They would not be discovered until they were happened upon by a patrol flight. So they're just found by accident. At 10.25 a.m. on August 2nd, over three and a half days after the sinking. Oh my god. Over those three plus days, sailors have been subjected to a lack of food and fresh water, heat exhaustion, exposure to salt water and oil in the ocean, because, you know, the oil from the ship would... Right. You know. And, Teresa, what else? Sharks. Sharks. Yeah. Some of the men were able to find rations floating in the wreckage. But many, out of desperation, drank salt water, leading to hypernatremia, which would cause delirium and hallucinations. Mm -hmm. Some of the sailors killed themselves. Oh, no. Of the nearly 900 sailors who survived the initial sinking, only 316 were rescued alive, including Captain McVeigh. And Quint. And Quint. Not really. Not really, Quint, but... It's estimated that sharks were responsible for up to 150 of the deaths. Wow. But still, that's 450 people who perished for one other, you know, another reason. Yeah, but well, besides the the 300 or so who yeah. killed, were killed in the initial Well, you sink, said so 900. Yeah. Nine, yeah, not, well, yeah, in the end, only 316 people survived the ship. Nine... 900 initially survived. Yeah. 300 made it to the end. Yeah. So that's 600 people who died, yeah. 150 of those. That's only 25% yep. by sharks, but still. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Shark-infested waters. But we have. So, I mean... It, Ooh. Yeah, and there, there's certainly some heroics about, like, when they were actually rescued. Like, because, like, um, there was the initial patrol flight. They're like, hey, there's these sur- people in the water... And there was like, oh, crap. And the first plane to get there, basically, was just, it was like one of those planes that could land in the water. Mm-hmm. And he was just told to, like, say, just drop some life rafts initially. Because, like, you know, we're, they, you know, some boats were coming to, you know, pick them up. Just drop some life rafts. But he noticed, like, hey, these guys look horrible. Like, they may die in the meantime. So he basically just landed his plane in the water and got as many people on board as he could. And then to the point where he just started, like, just 
lashing people to, like, the wings just to get them out of the water. Oh, man. Yeah, he saved, like, Jeez. a lot of people that way. I think he ended up getting, like, the Medal of Honor for it or something. Jesus. Yeah. Or, or some, maybe not the Medal of Honor, but, like, the next, I don't know, Distinguished Service Cross or something. I don't know what the rank and the medals are, but, yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty gruesome. Yeah, man, that's intense. Yeah. Yeah, and I know, like, being submerged in water in general is, like, n is not good for you after a certain period of time. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, and it's just, like, the weird irony of, like, dying of thirst yeah. in the water. Right. Especially after you've just dropped off the... Um, the atomic bomb. Right. Basically, the pieces and the uranium for the yep. atomic bomb that would go on to kill several thousands of people. I wonder if maybe some of them thought, like, this is punishment later on. Like, thought, this well, is punishment for what we did. I'm sure there was some something like that, but we'll, we'll get on that. Okay. Uh, the little boy atomic bomb that Indianapolis delivered was used to destroy the city of Hiroshima on August 6th. A second bomb, Fat Man, was used on Nagasaki on August 9th. It's just to give you some, like, time time frame. Mm -hmm. Following the rescue, a court of inquiry was convened, and on August 13th, it released its recommendations. Gibson was formally reprimanded for his actions, or lack of them, but was otherwise cleared. Gibson's superior was reprimanded as well. The court of inquiry recommended a court-martial for Captain McVeigh. Dang, okay. Uh, Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz moved to override the decision and only issue a reprimand to McVeigh, but he in turn was overridden by his boss, Fleet Admiral Ernest King, the Chief of Naval Operations. Overruled. No, you're overruled. It's been speculated, and this was certainly what McVeigh's father thought. Because remember, his father was a Navy Admiral mm -hmm. like earlier, in, like he was retired by this point, but he right. was an Admiral earlier in the uh, in the century. Um, King, uh, he, he thought that King proceeded with, uh, his son McVeigh's court-martial because he, Admiral McVeigh, the father, uh, had been King's superior officer during his early years in the Navy, and oh. had reprimanded King for sneaking women aboard the ship. Wow. So... Again, speculation, but... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, it, it's flimsy, but, the, I mean, there's, there's more... Robust reasons why this happened, which I'll get into. I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah. Uh, just to keep with the timeline. Meanwhile, Japan surrenders on August 15th. Mm-hmm. So, the war is over. Right. The court-martial held in November 1945 focused on two charges. Culpable inefficiency in the performance of duty and negligently endangering the lives of others. The first charge, accusing McVeigh of failing to issue an abandoned ship order in a timely manner, was quickly dismissed. Right. The second charge was based on McVeigh's fa failure to zigzag the ship. I'll, I'll explain. So zigzagging is a method of traveling through hazardous waters where enemy submarines are suspected. Essentially, the zigzag movement makes it harder for a submarine to target its torpedoes in an mm. effective manner... It's as like, the ship's movements are much more unpredictable than if it were moving in a straight line. It's like strafing. Yeah. When so, you when you play first-person shooters, you have to strafe. Yeah. Because it, then snipers have a harder time. Pretty much, yeah. It's like the ship version of that. Yeah. It takes a lot longer. Uh, <laughs> it's a yeah, lot slower. Yes, yes, certainly. But 
Yeah, but but you take up a bigger footprint, so torpedoes are not going to be able to target you as easy. Hmm. Uh, I yeah. mean, there's still a chance. Oh yeah, yeah, but it just, it, it, it's it reduces it's not foolproof, your, but yeah, it reduces yeah. the likelihood of getting hit than if you're just so going a straight line. So basically, they're saying like McVeigh didn't raise the alarm, which they were like, okay, you know, you didn't raise the alarm, but that's okay because we understand there are false alarms. And you should have, or not raise the alarm. Um, I'm. I keep. Uh, 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 no, they should be ordered to abandon ship. Yeah, I. I was getting there. I know what it was. I just was confusing it with the Pearl Harbor thing. Hmm. Um. So he didn't issue the order to abandon ship, but he didn't do it quickly enough. Yeah. But the, what was the first thing? Was that that, it? that was the first okay. thing? Yeah. But and that was just dismissed. So it's. Okay. Irrelevant, so it didn't it didn't yeah. it didn't count against them they were like whatever yeah but even if you didn't do that you should have zigzagged well during the court martial evidence was presented that the navy was aware of submarine activity in the area that indianapolis would be traversing oh boy a few days prior to the sinking of indianapolis the destroyer uss underhill had been sunk in the vicinity whoops but apparently they didn't feel that McVeigh needed to know that information because they didn't tell him. That's weird. The Navy had also declined McVeigh's request of a destroyer escort. Okay. I think the I I think they were like, well, the war's almost over. Japan is on its back foot. Even before the bombs were dropped, they were on their back foot. It's like, eh, it'll be fine. That's so weird because it seems like they were almost setting him up for failure like kind of yeah but they didn't tell him that it was you know targeted waters they didn't give him the the attache that he asked for right that he asked for so like what yeah and of course if he's not if he's not told like oh there was a sinking in this area beforehand oh we don't need to give you an escort because he's he's probably going to be in the impression okay well it's safe waters then so why would he zigzag Oh, yeah. It kind of makes you wonder how anything ever got done correctly back then. In terms of the military, I feel like it's not necessarily which military wins. It's just which military fuck or which military Fs up less. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, (laughs) especially at that time, we didn't have instantaneous information. No. Especially during that time, you would have relied on probably... Radio, yeah, radio, telegraph, radio messages, yeah, telegraph. Yeah. Um, so like, there's a delay in all of the information that you're going to be waiting on, and the other part is it's not simultaneous dissemination of information. So like now, if you know the Secretary of the Air Force wants to send out an email to everybody, he can literally. I I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. But they, um, they can send out that information simultaneously to literally everybody. That has an Air Force email address. It's a boy. It's an eight-year-old boy. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> they can do that. Yeah, instantaneously, yep. and and to anybody, you know. But now, like at this time that we're talking about, the radio signal is interpreted by an operator. That operator has to record the the information and then decide who do I give this to, who is this information pertinent for, and then go from there. And then the other part of that is if they give that message to their superior, their CO, whatever, who's to say that that information doesn't just get thrown away or doesn't get destroyed or forgotten about or what have you. 
So it just it just makes me think like how did they ever get on the same page to be able to do stuff like this successfully to communicate between ship to ship or planes well, in the air. I'm about to say something that's kind of like kind of to your point like how do they even function? Information declassified decades later. So not during the court martial but decades later. Freedom of Information Act? I don't think so. I'm just kidding. Later revealed that the distress signals sent out by the ship prior to the sinking had been received at three different stations. Okay. One thought it was just a Japanese trap and ignored it. Oh, no. Another, their commander was drunk and just didn't do anything about it. And the third just, like, asked not to be disturbed. Now, I don't... What? It, it didn't... I didn't see, like, how much of the message got through. Because at that point, I could, like, kind of see, like, okay, well, this is just this random signal we're getting. It's not, like, we can't tell if it's a distress signal or not. You know. But do not disturb is an option. I I guess. (laughs) It just seems very strange. Yeah, it was just, it's just like, wow. So, like, again, incompetence. It's weird. Did, I wonder if they had like some sort of way that they could know that the message was legit, like code words or something. Possibly. Um, I mean, certainly encryption codes were around at this time, but also again, like you know, how much of the message got through actually. Sure, so. that's fair. Now this is pertinent. The captain of the submarine that had sunk Indianapolis, Moshitsura Hashimoto even testified during the court-martial that zigzagging would not have made a difference, as he had been in an excellent position to launch his torpedoes. So the war is over. They get the guy who sunk the ship to testify in the court-martial. Holy crap. Which the Navy was, like, eviscerated for in the press. Because it's like... That's like a few good men status. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And as a side note, this is kind of tragic, uh... This was the last successful Japanese, like, operation during the war, was Mm -hmm. sinking of the ship. Mm -hmm. So, like, because the war ends just a few weeks later. Of course, right. Uh, Hashimoto returned to Japan once the war was over, only to find that his entire family had been killed in the bombing of Hiroshima. Oh, no. So, it's like, it's just this weird, like, he sunk the ship, or was a command of the submarine that sunk the ship, that brought the bomb... To kill his entire family. That killed family. his entire family. Dude, this is like it's the just, making it's, of an amazing revenge film. It's just like... It, it, well, we'll come back to him in a little while. It sucks, though. It does, but... The, I mean, okay, like, this dude's personal tragedy aside, which I am sensitive to, and I feel very bad that that anybody was ever killed in a <clears throat> nuclear explosion because it was totally unnecessary and, like, completely awful... In hindsight, obviously. Um, But I'm just saying, what if he was like a John Wick figure? Where he gets home, his entire family has been killed by the people that he got got revenge on. I mean, he didn't know that. He got revenge before he knew that he needed revenge. Right. But then, like, what if he becomes, like, international assassin? Going to pick off the last 300 people. I don't think that film would get made. Why not? <laughs> Kill Bill got made. Just saying. Uh, I, no, that that would not get made. <laughs> okay. 
Because you're going to have a guy who was on the side of the, I mean, granted, the side of the Japanese during World War II, hunting down American servicemen who survived a a horrible, horrible event. Get a Chinese producer. China produces a lot of movies these days. Well, fine, they can do it, but it wouldn't it, you, you would not get it would not be done over here. But. I'm going to cast Matt Damon. He would say no. <laughs> you don't know that. I I do. He'll be my fay. He'll be number one. He's already on the playing list. the guy who's who headed up the military side of the Manhattan Project in uh, Oppenheimer. So, oh, is he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know He's that. Playing uh, Leslie Groves. I don't think I'll be watching it. Oh, come on. I'm I'm not I'm not interested, man. I love Christopher Nolan, but the entire that entire I know it's a very important and overrepresented part of history, but the Atomic bombs are like a thing that leaves me with such a bad, icky feeling and a terrible taste in my mouth and shame. Just absolute, complete shame that mm. I don't know if I want to watch an entire movie about it. Fair. I mean, although to be And it'll be like three hours. To be fair, it's not about that. It's about Oppenheimer, but. I can't You would probably feel even worse by the end if you knew kind of what he had to go through afterwards. So, because <laughs> he was accused of being a communist and his career was basically destroyed. Yeah. So, but I, anyway, I, but we are way off topic now. I don't know if I would feel bad about that, honestly. Well, we're off topic anyway now. So, nevertheless, McVeigh was found guilty for negligently endangering the lives of others and removed from active duty. Given all the failures outside of McVeigh's control, it's speculated that he was made a scapegoat for the loss of his ship. Mm. Yeah, because his ship was like a big, the big bad. Of the 380 U.S. Navy ships lost during World War II, McVeigh was the only captain ever court-martialed for losing his ship. Dang. Following the trial, Admiral Nimitz, who had kind of like... Vouched for him. Yeah. He remitted the sentence and restored McVeigh to active duty. McVeigh retired in 1949 at the rank of Rear Admiral. Retirement for McVeigh, however, was not quiet and peaceful. Many families of those who died in the sinking held McVeigh responsible. Mm. One of the notes that he received read, quote, Merry Christmas! Our family's holiday would be a lot merrier if you hadn't killed my son. End quote. Jesus. Man. Wow. That's uh, it's pretty rough. I mean, so... It's with, about to get rougher. What? It's about to get rougher. Well, the... So, like, when we talked about the Pearl Harbor thing, it was kind of like... It was it was a similar situation where, like, it wasn't the person who actually effed up who was held responsible. Like, they, they did get, you know, some punishment, but yeah. they weren't, like, ultimately the person that it hung on. And I know that we've talked about it in other ones that are outside the U.S. military, too. Like, who was really responsible? Whose fault was it really... And it's so tough for me because being somebody who's not a part of the military, having those things, like having something that you did not do, could not touch, were not responsible for immediately, and having that rest on your shoulders, even though you likely didn't even know about it at Mm -hmm. the time that it happened, feels so antithetical to me. That I'm just, I just can't even wrap my brain around it. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're responsible for all these people, but it's like, 
Okay. If you were, if you were an employer and in the real world, you know, not in the military, if you were an employer and you're responsible for all these people that are underneath you, um, let's say you're the department manager and you find out that somebody has been selling drugs in the department and you're responsible for them. But on the other hand, it's like, well, you couldn't have possibly known. And so that person gets punished and you strengthen your, you know, your rules about it and you be more strict about um, what people are doing at work. But that's it. That's as far as it goes. You wouldn't get punished for it. You wouldn't be the one held responsible for the drugs that were sold. Yeah. But it's not like that in the military. So it's just hard for me to wrap my brain around. On November 8th, 1968, at age 70, McVeigh shot and killed himself at his home in Litchfield, Connecticut. Jeez. That sucks. Survivors of Indianapolis did not hold McVeigh responsible, and in the decades after his suicide, campaigned to have his record cleared. I was going to say, like, isn't, doesn't that hold more weight? Like, the survivors? Yeah. You'd you would think, think that that would hold more weight. You think, but a lot of the families were like, "Oh, this the the Navy, which we've spent the last five years like blind, you know, blindly assuming can do no wrong and fully backing." Well, they say this guy's responsible. So, woof. Yeah. Uh, several. Like I said, several survivors pushed for it, and the commander of the submarine, Hashimoto, even he had said um, that we you know, we had forgiven each other. It had been so long, like, we have forgiven each other. Maybe you could find it within yourself to forgive this man. Mm-hmm. Um, congressional hearings in September 1999 led to wider awareness of the facts of the incident, and in July 2001, McVeigh's record was officially cleared. Wow. As of September 2022, which is the latest I could find information on this particular thing, only one survivor remains. Hmm. Several attempts were made in the 21st century to locate the wreck of Indianapolis. None were successful until August 19th, 2017, when the wreck was located at a depth of over 18,000 feet on the Pacific floor. Holy crap. And there it is. It's like a, it's like a radar image of it. Yeah. But you can see it's it's largely intact, like the bow is missing, and the bow, like, it's separated Away. from the ship, and the guns are kind of strewn about in a debris field, but Looks for like the most part, the Mars. ship is intact. Yeah. Yep. Wow. The grave of 300 people. Sheesh. Yeah. And, of course, as we mentioned, the cultural legacy of the sinking, probably um, most widely known of in... The 1975 film Jaws, where shark hunter Quint relays the admittedly altered story of his survival of the incident. Because he says, like, oh, there was communications blackout because we were transporting the bomb. Which is, like, not the case. Right. But, it, but I mean, that's... I'm fine with creative liberty in that scene because it kind of makes it... You didn't need that scene. You didn't need to fully explain the whole thing. You just need sure. to know... Uh, it some out mal- Some naval malfeasance and... <laughs> Ship sank and sharks. So, yeah. which is pro- honestly probably the most important scene in that movie, because otherwise Quint is just this crazy weirdo who hunts sharks. 
Yeah. It, but, like, you know, it explains, like, why, like, his motivation, his pathos for, like, being, like, you know, obsessive over shark hunting and, like, why he just will not quit. Right. When, really, he should have when, you know, the shark of the, the, shark of the film was, like, pretty much destroying his boat. Right, it's exactly. like, nope, nope, I can't, like, he could not bring himself to do it. It's like, I have to be victorious over the shark because the shark was victorious over so many of my comrades when right. I was on that ship. And traumatic experiences like that have a way of burrowing into your brain. Yes. So. But, yeah, so. Yeah, it makes Quint the most interesting character in the entire movie. Oh, yeah, more than Brody and certainly more than Hooper. How Has there been a film adaptation of the events that happened during the Indianapolis? One that I know of starring Nicolas Cage. And he was McVeigh. It okay. was during his stretch where, like, he was so broke, he basically had to take whatever script was put in front of him. <laughs> I see. Yes. So, it, it, I don't think it was reviewed well. It was, like, maybe 10 years ago, thereabouts. Okay. So, like, when, you know, he had to sell off his dinosaur skeletons in his castle because he was broke. E so, yeah. Sources for this. Um... Well, the actual record of the court of in the court of inquiry and the records from the court martial, so those are available. Uh, Raymond Letch, the tragic fate of USS Indianapolis from 2000. Richard Newcomb, abandoned ship. The saga of USS Indianapolis from 1960. Doug Stanton in harm's way from 2003. And Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, Indianapolis: A True Story, the Worst Sea Disaster in U.S. Naval History from 2018. So. Nice. And there's no feedback, as always, because nobody listens to this show. <laughs> so the podcast to recommend uh, this week, uh, Flatpack History of Sweden. Oh, cool. Uh, so, you know, it's, again, uh, pretty straightforward. It's a Swedish history podcast. History podcasters are nothing if not straightforward. <laughs> uh, says it all in the title. So yeah. if you're interested in Swedish history, go listen to it. Pretty good. I enjoy it. Has the... Uh, Cody A. Reynolds' stamp of approval, uh, what which are is we... very valuable. Uh, I'll get a passport. Mm. You can stamp it. Mm. Um, what are we talking about next week? Uh, something that definitely is it, right after uh, U.S. naval officers not reporting things, uh, probably a recurring theme of this podcast. The British just don't know when to quit with the imperialism thing. <laughs> oh, no. They they really don't. Oh, boy. We're going to be talking about the Suez Crisis uh -oh. in Seems 1956. Gonna... All right. Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube, uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeEffedUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is We, we Effed Up. up.